morning. Uh, how's it going, church? <clears throat> it's good to be in the house of the Lord. I had my uh, shameless plug slotted right for the beginning of my sermon of bringing your kids to youth group, but he's already accomplished that for me. Um, Wednesday, Wednesday nights, 7 p.m., I want to see him be there or uh, be square. Uh, sound good? So if you have your, your Bible or your text, you could open up to 1 Peter chapter 2 uh, and stick a finger on it because uh, we're going to be spending the majority of our time there this morning. But if you don't have a Bible, uh, don't worry. It'll be on the big Bible in the sky. That's what I like to call it, the Bible on the screen. Um, this past Memorial Day, my wife and I, we welcomed our second son into the world, Hudson Wells Gardner. Uh, yeah, we upgraded from being a family of three to a family of four. Uh, it's weird to say, but I love everything about it. Um, it's so good. And so we were, we were sitting in the hospital after he was born, and I was, I was holding Hudson, and I was like, you know, Bethy, this experience was great. Uh, no hiccups, no uh, bad things happened. It was nice and smooth. And I looked down at Hudson, and I was like, there's only one negative thing that I can think of, is that he wasn't born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. You see, my wife and I, we're Pittsburgh natives, and I think my favorite thing to do is to tell people that I'm from Pittsburgh. And so I began to think in my mind that, that Hudson's eyes have yet to grace the 446 bridges in our city, that his eyes have yet to see the three rivers, the Allegheny, the Monongahela, and the Ohio uh, convene at Point State Park. I was like, his eyes have yet to see the South Side, the North Shore, the Strip District, Heinz Field. Yeah. You know, I, I, I realized that his, his lips have yet to graze uh, Turner's iced tea from a paper milk carton. <laughs> it's a thing, trust me. It's a thing. I love, I love Pittsburgh so much. You know, what my wife and I, we refer uh, to Pittsburgh as home. But we moved to uh, Cincinnati over a year ago, and Cincinnati has become our home. It's become our home, our, our home away from home. We're home, but we aren't home. And that's the title of my message this morning, that we're home, but we're not home. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. Home, but not home. Because some of you guys may be in the same boat uh, me and my family are. We weren't born in Cincinnati. We weren't raised in Cincinnati. But yet this place has become our home. That's the theme I want to talk about this morning, our home away from home. Let's read the text together this morning. But before you do, would you pray with me? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Jesus, we love you. God, I pray that as we study your word, as we look towards your word, God, I pray that it would transform our hearts and minds, Jesus, that we would glean something new from this text, that we would leave this place transformed and changed and sent out on mission, God, that you would do only what you can do in our lives, that your Holy Spirit would invade our hearts, that it would invade our hearts, that it would saturate this place. And everybody said, amen, amen. Let's read the text together, 1 Peter 2, uh, starting in verse 4. Starting in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, 
a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You once were not a people, but now you are God's people. You once had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and as exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Amen. At this point in the letter, Peter pivots uh, from the metaphor of the readers being like newborn infants to something totally different, to the metaphor of buildings, of stones, and of architecture. So this morning, we need to understand the metaphor in its entirety so that we can pull out the marvelous truths that are held within this passage. And so let's dive into verse 4 together as you come to him a living stone rejected by men, but chosen and precious. As we look at verse one, it clearly states, as you come to him, as you come to him. So as Christians, we come to Christ because of the knowledge of the word of God and experience salvation. But guess what? It doesn't end there. It's just the beginning. It says, as you come, present tense, an act of continuously doing. Seeking God is on Peter's mind, and it should constantly be on our minds as believers. The act of coming to God daily, the act of seeking God daily, the act of praying daily, the act of getting into God's word daily so we can know what he is speaking to us and saying to us and what he's going to continue to say to us. Amen, church. Man, Peter goes on to say, as you come to him, the living stone, the living stone, Stone, not a dead stone, not an incapable stone, not, 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 not an old stone, the living stone. Christ is identified as a living stone, which refers to his stability as the risen Lord. The risen Lord. Jesus was rejected by the nation of Israel as the Messiah and is going to continue to be rejected by people because of the sinful desires in their hearts. But in the sight of God, Jesus was chosen and Jesus was was precious. Jesus was chosen by God to redeem humanity from their sin. Jesus was chosen to redeem you and I from our sin. You see, Jesus was God's plan A. There is no plan B, and there never was. Jesus is the hope for humanity. Jesus is chosen. Jesus is precious. Let's look at verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now the language kind of shifts. We see, uh, we see that we, meaning you and I, are now the living stones. What does that mean for you and I to be living stones? 
So Jesus, you know, he was, he was crucified. He, he, he died. He was, he was buried. He was risen and he ascended into heaven. And right before he ascended into heaven, he told us that he must go so, so, so something far greater can come, right? That the Holy Spirit could come and make its home in our hearts, that it can dwell in us. So he can be in all places at all times. So now the localized manifestation of God's presence is not God incarnate, Jesus Christ, but the Holy Spirit imparted to those who believe. God's presence is replaced on this earth by his indwelling in all believers. So now we are the living stones. We are the living stones. We are the carriers of God's presence and we are being built up. And the thought here is that every time somebody experiences salvation, and at salvation, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit occurs, the spiritual house, not the, not the local church, the idea here is the church universal, every believer all around the world, the universal church is being built. And that we are to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The amazing truth Peter states here is that through Jesus' work on the cross, every believer is a part of a new priestly order. You see, before Jesus' death, you and I, we would, we would need a priest. We would need a high priest. You see, in the Old Testament, a high priest was the only one who had access to the presence of God. And it says in the Old Testament and within the temple, there's this, this place called the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And inside that, that, that dwelling, there was the Ark of the Covenant, which in the Old Testament carried the literal and physical presence of God. Only one person had access to it. And this, this most holy place was covered by a veil. And the priest would go in only one day a year to atone for the sins of the people. But as Jesus came to this earth, the great high priest, as he hung on the cross, one hand stretched out towards sinful man and the other stretched out toward a gracious, loving God, he bridged the gap for you and for me. Man, he made a, no, he made a way when there was no way. He made a way when there was no way. You see, the word priest in Latin is bridge builder. Bridge builder, Jesus built that bridge. And so what that means now is that the Holy Spirit is dwelling on the inside of us, that we have the ability to build a bridge between lost people and God. We now have immediate access to the presence of God. Church, that is so good. Any place, anytime we can come before God knowing that he will hear our cry, knowing that he is with us, that he's leading us and that he is guiding us. We are a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood. And so when we come to Jesus, we enter into the priesthood of all believers. And now that we are in this priesthood, we, we have the ability to communicate and to commune with God and to minister to people. We're a royal priesthood. Man. Let's look at verse 6. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
Peter's concept of the construction of a spiritual house built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ is validated here in verse 6 by quoting Isaiah's prophecy of the chosen stone. And the quotation is found in Isaiah 28, 6, and it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste or put to shame. Now we see this living stone, Jesus Christ, now become the cornerstone. So now Jesus is the foundation of the spiritual house. The church universal is built upon Jesus is the cornerstone. What holds the spiritual house, the church universal, all together. And Jesus is the living stone, which makes us living stones because the Holy Spirit dwells on the inside of us and we are making up the spiritual house, the church universal. And we are called to build it stone by stone and brick by brick. You see, uh, a single brick is pretty much useless. Unless you want to smash a window, unless you want to destroy something, a single brick is, is pretty much useless. And I'm pretty sure that some of us uh, have uh, some random bricks laying around in our garage and in our shed. I know I do, and they're, they're, they're the most inconvenient things in the world. Every time I need to, to pull something out, I got to move this, this stack of random bricks to another corner. Uh, whether it's bricks or, or landscaping stones or, or, or pavers, I feel like I'm constantly moving them in the backyard and around the garage, uh, in, the, in the shed. It's inconvenient. There's no way to do it. But you see, those bricks are useless because they aren't a part of something. They aren't a part of something. So when you look around at this church, it's, it's primary, primarily built with block. Blocks that are stacked upon one another. Blocks that are stacked beside each other, above and, and, and below each other. But when those bricks come together, they, they, they make a structure. They make something meaningful that serves a purpose. You see, you and I as living stones, we're a part of the church universal, but as living stones, we come together as the local church and we have meaning and we have purpose. We have meaning and we have purpose. And so the idea is if you're a brick doing life off in isolation, not cooperation, that you have no meaning and you have no purpose. Because we're we're called to, to, to be living stones stacked upon each other beside each other. Man. William Barclay, he says this, individualistic Christianity is not Christianity. Christianity is community within the fellowship of the church. Man, we need to be plugged in and connected into the life of the local church. Let's, let's, look, at, let's look at it this way. I mean, you guys have ever eaten a meal alone? You sat down, you ate dinner by yourself, lunch, breakfast. I know when, when, when I eat alone, it's kind of a, a shameful thing, a depressing thing, you know? Most of the times I'm, I'm in my truck and I, I fly through the McDonald's drive-thru, amen? Uh, 
I fly through the McDonald's drive-thru. I order two McChickens and a large Coke. Uh, that's my go-to order. And so I pull up to the window. I pay, pull up to the next window. They hand me the bag of McChickens. Man, I'm ready to dive in. I unwrap them. I wrinkle the balls up and I throw them, the wrappers up, and I throw them on the floor of the passenger seat. I double stack my McChickens to make one mega McChicken. And I dive right in. Massive bite. <sighs> Lettuce is falling everywhere. Dude, I got mayonnaise running down my chin like I'm a starving animal. And you know, McDonald's, they never give you napkins in the bag, so now you got to use your sleeve and kind of clean it up. So now I'm all stained and greasy and I'm sick to my stomach the rest of the day. You see, I have no cares how I'm eating. I'm not minding my manners because I'm alone. And it doesn't matter. Another instance when I, I eat alone is uh, it's, I get home really late at night and I walk in the house and immediately my dog starts barking. <sighs> I'm like, I'm not going to eat alone if you keep barking, dog. You're going to wake up my two kids under two and I'm, I'm never going to eat alone this whole night. So be quiet. And so the first thing I do is I, I get the dog quiet and I take my backpack off or my jacket or whatever. I throw it to the side and uh, I open up the fridge. I pulled out leftovers from about a week and a half ago and I hunch over the sink in the middle of the night like a monster of the night. And I begin to eat this cold fried rice, you know, little rice just dropping in the sink. Uh, And I'm not minding my manners at all because nobody's with me. I'm eating alone. Church, what I'm, what I'm trying to say with this, it's, it's not about what you eat. It's about who you eat it with. Because the, 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 the sermon podcasts are great. The ability to watch church uh, online in your house is great. Uh, the, the audio sermons are great. Online worship is great. But there is something special and something powerful when the people of God gather together and we worship the matchless name of Jesus and lift him up because when we come together, this house becomes a holy habitation. The presence of God is here and dwelling in our midst. It's not about what you eat. It's all about who you eat it with. Amen, church. Amen. Man, that's, it's all, it's, oh man, I'm out of breath. Man. You see, it's in the presence of God we, we find our true home. It's in the presence of God that we find our true home. You see, God is here right now. He's working in this place. He's stirring our hearts. He's present in this place. Man. And when we gather and we worship Jesus, we get homesick for heaven. We get homesick for heaven. Because you see, this world is not our home. But it's his presence that is. As I was studying, I I came across a paper uh, this week from a student at the Harvard School of Design. He turned it in as his Master of Architecture thesis. It was a paper all about how the role architecture has played in our world ever since Adam and Eve were driven out of Eden. And of course, that was the beginning of architecture. We lived in a garden in a perfect place, and we were surrounded by the presence of God. But driven out of the garden, what was Adam and Eve's immediate response? They, They built a city. Architecture was the immediate solution. From that moment forward, we have been constructing buildings, and he says in his paper that it was our defense mechanism for losing access to the presence of God, to create a place, to create a building, to create a structure. 
And this, of course, came to the ultimate point at the Tower of Babel, when the earliest civilizations gathered together, even though God told them to scatter into the world, they stayed together and tried to build a tower that reached heaven. They were trying to get what they lost in the fall on their own, ignoring what God said to do, which was to get to heaven by sacrifice, only pointing to Jesus Christ. They thought architecture was the way which they could achieve what was lost. So the writer of the paper said that building and all other buildings from that moment forward were essentially attempts to replace the sense of us losing our home. For it was not a building that was our home, it was being in the presence of God that was home. And I'm gonna give you a quote from the writer, Kyle Dugdale. He says, architecture has struggled to mitigate the effects of the fall, but the city is a poor substitute for the Garden of Eden. Architecture performs at its best the role of a fig leaf covering humanity's exposure. In the end, perhaps, it is not so much a cure than an expression of humanity's sickness. What is Kyle saying? He's saying that there's an essential emptiness in all of our hearts. There's an ache that we cannot shake. There's a yearning and a longing, no matter the structure, the square footage, the fancy bathrooms, the big property, all in an attempt to feel a sense of connection that we cannot experience except through the presence and the power of God. And that is what we are here to take, church. That is what we're here to experience this morning, the presence and the power of God. Man. It's not that we just sing a couple of songs and listen to a couple of sermons because Peter says that we have to be stacked upon each other as stones to the extent that we are doing life together as Jesus followers. And if we aren't together, what are we? We're off in isolation. We're just rocks and and random bricks, random stones, and that's not going to do anything. That's not going to clothe anyone. That's not going to feed anyone. That's not going to reach anybody. That's not going to help save anybody. Man. And oftentimes, that's how we end up living. Whatever the case is, we tend to do life in isolation and not cooperation. We miss out on the power that is possible when we do life like living stones that are stacked upon each other and beside each other and next to each other. We, when we are together, we're being built into the... being built into what God wants us to be. God's house is us together. It's our home, but not our home. Because our true home is in the presence of God. And when we gather in unity and in harmony, within the context of that unity and harmony, we have the ability to make a difference. And that's why it's so vitally important if you call New Heights Church your church home, you get signed up for a small group. You get signed up for a small group so you can come together as living stones stacked beside each other and doing life together. And that's how you find freedom from the sin that you're experiencing. And it's so important that you hop on our growth track because that assimilates you into the life of the church and and propels you to make a difference in your community. We're called to do life together as stones stacked upon each other to build this physical house, but also the spiritual house. And P- Peter, he, he continues to quote scripture in verses seven and eight, but pivots the subject of the text from believer to unbeliever. Let's look at it. It says, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumbled because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. 
You see, we have to remember that Peter is writing this letter to a group of scattered Christians that are experiencing immense physical and social persecution. J.H. Eliot, a British historian, says this about the initial readers of, the, of this letter. A barrage of verbal abuse designed to demean, discredit, and shame the believers as, a social, as social and moral deviants, endangering the common good. This procedure of public shaming was employed as a means of social control with the aim of pressuring the minority community to conform to the conventional values and standards of conduct. You see, the world is trying to put Christians in their mold by shaming them, by trying to discredit them. And God's word still rings true today, doesn't it, church? We still face this. We, we still see this. The world is constantly pressuring us to conform into its culture and its ideologies. And Peter contrasts this by saying that there's honor for those who believe. He's using his words to encourage and strengthen the body of believers. Peter's like, yeah, everybody's shaming you. Everybody's making fun of you. They're saying what you believe is foolish. But guess what? God honors you. I honor you. Church, God honors you today. I honor you. God honors your faithfulness. God honors your steadfastness. God honors your commitment. God honors your generosity. God honors you. It doesn't matter what the world says about you. It doesn't matter what anybody else has said about you. God honors you. He honors your faith. He honors your faith. He honors your obedience. And that's another perk of being connected into the life of the local church. The body of believers uh, edify and strengthen one another. You see, Peter goes on to speak about those who do not believe, and he quotes another Old Testament passage found in Psalm 118.22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's referring back to the supremacy and the necessity of Jesus as the foundation of our lives but the builders have rejected him. Who are the builders? You see, the builders are the nation of Israel at large, that Jesus was rejected as the Messiah by the Jewish people. They didn't approve of, 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 of Jesus's origin. They didn't approve of his lack of formal education. They didn't approve of his disregard of religious tradition. They, they, they didn't approve of his choice of friends. You see, Jesus was rejected every step of the way. Peter then goes on to quote another Old Testament passage, Isaiah 8, 14 through 15. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and be taken. You see, Peter uses the prophet's words to reflect on those who do not trust in the Lord. And by implication, those who have not been trusted in the Lord have or will encounter him as a stone or a rock, and they will stumble or fall because of him. So Peter, in this text, is clearly presenting Jesus as the only means of salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody can come to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way, and Peter is emphasizing this to the early church. But if you reject Jesus, 
If you reject Jesus, you would have to do so by your own conscious decision. And by doing that, you were separating yourself from God. And Peter goes on to say that they stumbled because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. People reject God and disobey the word because that is their nature. We were born into skin and there's no escaping our sinful desires. And that is why we need to remember, remember to continually come as you come to the living stone. Come to Jesus every day. You see in in verses 9 and 10, Peter now pivots back to the idea of the believer. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter says you are a chosen race. You are a chosen race. The title chosen race stresses God's loving initiative and bringing the church to himself. The body of believers is God's spiritual race. You see, at New Heights Church, our vision is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus. And within that, it encompasses being a multicultural and multi-generational church. And Peter makes this radical claim in the text, whether you are white and follow Jesus, whether you are African-American and you follow Jesus, whether you are Asian and you follow Jesus, whether you are Latino and you follow Jesus, though we come from many races, we constitute a new race of those who have been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And here in this text lays the foundational cure for the evils of racism in the human society. That we are one race. Jesus is what unites people. Jesus is what unites people and I'm not gonna wait for another tragedy to pass by to use my voice and to say something. Jesus is the only way that we can overcome the sicknesses of racism and prejudice in this world. And can I say that racism and prejudice have no area in the life of a born-again believer because the kingdom of God is comprised of people from every tribe, every language, every nation, every tongue, and it's beautifully diverse. And in that perfect unity, we see the image in the presence of God. We are a chosen race, united under God. United under God. Man, if you want to if you want to see this world change, bring it Jesus. If you want to see people change, bring them Jesus. He's the only answer. You see true unity can only be found in the context of the gospel and within the Godhead. Peter says once again that we are God's royal priesthood. We are God's royal priesthood. We have the ability to build the bridge between God and lost people. We are also God's holy nation. 
he has set apart for himself. God has created us and formed us and fashioned us to worship him. And in our walk with Christ, we need to have the desire to be holy. You see, you can't separate God's people, the spiritual house, and holiness. We need to pursue holiness. We need to remember while Peter is writing this letter, people are dying for the faith. They are experiencing persecution, and in this persecution, they still have the desire to be holy. Church, I'm going to challenge you this morning to be holy. To be holy. As you are walking with Christ, you should become more like Christ. We should constantly desire to grow in our relationship with God. We should want to pursue holiness. And Peter goes on to say, you once were in darkness, but God has called you into his marvelous light. That in your salvation, God pulled you from your sin and your shame and your despair and brought you into light and into life. And he has done that so you may declare his excellencies to a lost and hurting and broken world so you can share all that, done, that God has done in you and for you. In you and for you. You see verses 11 and 12, it says this, Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see, Peter calls us sojourners and exiles because this world is not our home. We are home, but we're, we're not home. Our ultimate home is in the presence of God, and we're just passing through this earth. We have heaven to look forward to, so we need to keep our eyes set there, our hope set there, our hearts set there, our priorities set there, because this life that we are experiencing now is just temporary that it's not going to last. So Peter urges us to abstain from passions of the flesh, which are our sinful desires. And you know, we need to remember that life is not a game to be played, that it's a war to be waged. That every minute, every second, you are being tempted to sin. You're being enticed to sin. You see, the devil is roaring around like a lion seeking to devour us. Sin wants to destroy us. Man. And if we like it or not, as Christians, people look at our lives to see if they line up with what we believe. They look at our lives, lost people look at our lives to see if what we do lines up with what we believe, with what we say lines up with what we believe. The way we conduct our lives is our witness. The way we conduct our lives is our witness to a lost and hurting and broken world. So Peter appeals to us to keep our conduct honorable, to keep it honorable, to pursue holiness as we what? As we mix with unbelievers. And I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna close here, worship team. You can, you can join me. As, as, as we mix with unbelievers, you and I are, are called to, to, to mix with unbelievers. So if you aren't mixing with people 
who do not know Jesus, you're doing something wrong. You're doing something wrong. Man, because if we do not mix with unbelievers if, who will share the living hope of Jesus with them, if we do not do it, who will? You see, he dwells on the inside of us and empowers us to reach the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think that one of the best ways to reach the lost is to partner with the local church because the local church, when we gather together, we become a collective force. There are strength in numbers. And that's only true if the church is operating in the way it should be. Jesus said himself that it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, that he did not come for the righteous, but the ungodly, those who are sick with sin. There's this thing I do when I, when I always go to enter an elevator. First step is press the button, or you'll stand there for five minutes thinking you press the button. First step, press the button. And as I stand there and I, I wait for the elevator the whole time, I hope that it's empty. <laughs> because it's so awkward for me. Do I say hi? Do I ask them to press my floor number? Do I do the just quick in reach across? Do I say, how are you doing today? <laughs> And the doors eventually open up and I see the same look on everybody's face, annoyance. <laughs> like, dude, I, I can't believe you're impeding my journey to the bottom of this building. And so now I have to enter into this elevator all apologetically. Sorry, 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 sorry. I'm not gonna ask you to press my button, I'll just do it myself. And the whole time you, you enter the elevator, as I enter the elevator, I know people are looking at me. That they're judging me. Like, what's this guy all about? Where's he going? Where's he coming from? Huh? But as soon as those elevator doors begin to close, I turn and I become one of them. And then ding, the doors open. Now I'm the one with the annoyed look on my face. Gotta shuffle around, make room for this chump. Church, what I'm trying to say is that the gospel should never end here. When we get to the point when the church becomes a, a social club of good people, we have failed the mission of God. When we get the idea that, that this is an exclusive journey just for us, we have totally missed the mission of God. I wanna challenge you as a church to never be or to never do the turn, thinking that God's grace ended with you, that his mercy ended with you, that his saving power ended with you. I wanna challenge you to never turn your back to the people, but stay head long, focus on them, pray for them, love them, because that is how you are gonna change the world. That's how you're gonna change this community, how you're gonna change this city. I never wanna be a part of a church that does the turn. And would you stand to your feet with me as we close?
would you bow your head and, and close your eyes? Maybe you're here today and this is all new to you, that Jesus is new to you and you will make the decision to make Jesus the foundation of your life. Looking at your life in the state that is in now, you realize that you've built a, ca- a sand castle on the edge of the sea. That when the storms of li- this life, when they come and they will come, It'll wreck everything you've built, everything you've tried to achieve on your own. But now, you have the opportunity to build your life on a sure and steadfast foundation of Jesus Christ, who is unmovable, who is unshakable, who does not change and will not falter. And if you feel a sense of longing or of yearning in your heart, that is God drawing you to himself. And if that is you, would you, would you lift a hand in the air? It's just an outward of ex- expression of an inward response, just indicating what God is doing in your life and in your heart right here, right now, in this very moment. If you want Jesus to be the foundation of your life. Thank you. Thank you. Maybe you're here this morning and you've realized that you're living as this world, living living as if this world is your, your permanent residence. You're storing all your treasure up here. All your energy and effort are focused on getting the biggest house or the fanciest car or whatever the case may be, success in your job or in your career. I wanna, I wanna pray for you and with you that the Holy Spirit would invade your heart and saturate your life, that you begin to do a new work in you where he flips your priorities on the things of this earth to the things of God. Man, if if that's you, uh, lift a hand in the air. I wanna pray with you and for you. It's awesome, thank you, thank you. And so church, would, would you all repeat this prayer after me? Nobody prays alone in this house, Jesus. Come into my life, change me, transform my mind, renew my heart, do something only you can do. Lord, I'm turning from my sin, my selfish desire, and I turn towards you, towards your mercy and your hope. And everybody said, amen. And washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen, church. Amen.